Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Hot Dish was once described to me as just every leftover in the fridge dumped into a casserole dish and baked together. Not necessarily, not necessarily. I just threw some names in the hat. I got a little toxic in that shanty for a while. Proving I was OG metal and a virgin. Bent! Good morning, degenerate anglers. Welcome to Bent, the podcast that melted the top of your Mr. Buddy heater when we borrowed it last ice fishing season and still haven't bought you a new one. I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte, and... and uh... Straight up, man. You got to be careful when you're toasting <laughs> sandwiches on your Mr. Buddy heaters. It's a, that is an actual public service that we're offering you. Truth. And if anybody out there is watching or has been watching the Fur Hat Ice Tour uh, on our YouTube channel, you know that, that Giannis and Mark Norquist had fun spearing whitefish and pike in Minnesota. But what you don't see is the, is the behind-the-scenes carnage. We permanently damaged a borrowed space heater when we put our foil wrapped sandwiches on it and, and the foil like <laughs> deflected the heat right up into the plastic frame on that heater. And uh, yeah, I got a little toxic in that shanty for a while. So don't do that. I, I was not part of this production, but weren't weren't you the producer, the producer of that episode? <laughs> I was I was the producer of the episode. I was ah. the one who put the sandwiches on the heater. Uh, yeah. So entirely your fault then? Entirely my fault, yes. <laughs> Well, that was a rookie move. You should have known better. Uh, any real hard water guy uh, brings the aftermarket grill attachment for the heater. And I'm not a um, real hard water guy, but even I know that. It's, uh, it's standardized fishing <laughs> gear these days. I know that now. All right. Like, I, I, you learned, I learned my lesson, and I realized that straight up I have so much to learn still when it comes <laughs> to ice fishing. But the one thing I know for sure is that you absolutely cannot go out on the ice without a thermos of coffee. Ah, that is true. And if you're going to drink coffee, you might as well drink good coffee. Okay, this podcast is entirely fueled by Black Rifle Coffee. Whether we're sitting over a hole staring at a flasher and willing one of those thick red lines to appear, or we're sitting in front of a computer pressing Control-Alt-Delete because Doom froze mid-shootout again, <laughs> we've probably got a cup of Black Rifle in our hands. Uh, 
Right now, I uh, I kind of can't get enough of the Just Black Roast, ah, which I get delivered right to my door through Black Rifle Coffee subscription service. Super convenient. And uh, yeah, if you're a coffee drinker, I, I highly recommend signing up. Yep, just go to blackriflecoffee.com backslash meat eater to get started. And if you use the promo code meat eater at checkout, they'll give you a 20% discount just for having good taste in podcasts. Yes, indeed they will. Uh, all right, getting back to the show, it is time for trivia. But I do feel the need to publicly admit that that story about melting the borrowed heater, like we were just making up some some shit to say. That was completely true. <laughs> all of that happened. And in fact, the heater in question actually belonged to our trivia guest today. Oh, uh, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> and we, yeah, I don't, I don't know why she keeps agreeing to come on the show. Oh, this is why I can't have nice things. Yeah, we still haven't replaced the heater, just for the record. You gotta be highly skilled for these fucking shows. You understand that? Yes, I do understand. Are you well versed there? Are you very smart man? Yes, I am. All right. So we've reached the part of the show where we call uh, smart and talented people and ask them stupid questions. Joining us today is angler, hunter, and biologist Mandy Urich. Mandy, how's it going? It's going, guys. Thanks for the call. Oh, uh, you know these are always fun for us. <laughs> are you uh, you ready to play some trivia? I'm ready to play some trivia. All right, let's do it. Now, uh, if I remember correctly from a conversation you and I had in your garage, which is uh, a better man cave than any man cave I've ever been in, for the record, uh, you had a hand in naming some of the soft plastic baits for 13 fishing, right? (laughs) Yes, yes, I did. So, so like, maybe, say, the bubble butt or the churro or the my name's Jeff all infused with donkey sauce, you're, you're to blame for all that? Not necessarily, not necessarily. I just threw some names in the hat. <laughs> oh, all right. So you're not you're not going to own any of those, at least not publicly? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, today, I'm going to give you a list of ridiculously named soft plastic baits that are not made by 13 Fishing. Your job is to correctly identify which one is fake. All right. So all of these except for one is an actual soft plastic bait. And you got to figure out which one is uh, is not real. You got it? I got it. All right. So is it A, Vibragrub, B, Shrillpin, C, Jigilator, D, Bearded Crazy Legs Chiggercraw, or E, Machete? <laughs> I'm going to go with A. You're going to go with A? Yes. You think you think the Vibra Grub does not exist? No. Oh, I'm sorry. No, the <laughs> no. Vibra Grub is a real bait. I'm yes. going to be in so much trouble for getting that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All of those except for the Jigilator actually are real baits. And uh, I'm just going to give everyone a hint out there. Don't look up Jigilator online. You won't like what you find. Mandy... Thanks so much for being a good sport and playing. Uh, Always good to talk to you. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Gotta say, man, Mandy remains our reigning smooth moves champion. Yeah, with the best and and by best, I mean, worse guide story we've gotten yet. If you haven't heard that one, go (laughs) check out episode uh, six. I believe it was of the podcast. Bring an extra bottle of bleach and a few rolls of Charmin, though. Okay, some yeah, of you know what sure. we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and go watch the Fur Hat Ice Tour on the Meteor YouTube channel. You can watch Mandy try to teach Giannis how to ice fish for walleye and explain once and for all 
the difference between hot dish and casserole. <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> hot dish was once described to me as just every leftover in the fridge dumped into a casserole dish and baked together. Like there's, from there's hamburger more to helper it than that. Hamburger helper, Kung Pao chicken, in it goes. Um, that that yeah. may be true, but I, I like Mandy <laughs> will go to the mat with you and kick your ass and tell you that there's more to it than that. And win, because I really don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we're going to transition now from hot coffee, ice cleats, bibs, and tiny poles to cold beer, flip-flops, board shorts, and long rods. And uh, look, every year around this time, I personally start feeling the itch for some saltwater flats fishing and, and warm yeah. climbs. And I, and I inevitably think about the small island nation of the Bahamas. It's been so long since I've been there. I long for Andros and, and, and Bimini. Man, Me Bimini. too. Bimini's the yep. sleeper, by the way. Big bones. Uh, but the Bahamas defines saltwater flats fishing as we know it. The country controls the largest expanse of saltwater flats in the world, and it's built an entire multi-billion dollar industry around bonefish, a species that, if you think about it, right, not so long ago, was practically worthless. Totally. Locals caught them just to sell to big gamers as marlin baits. Like that's what they, <laughs> back in the day, they trolled them for mar. Imagine that, right? But they, yeah, also, yeah. they're super flashy and reflective. So I kind of yeah. get it. But that was in, in the not so distant past. Anyway, in this week's freaking Philistine segment, where we encourage all of you to get out there and read actual words that have been printed on actual paper, Miles is going to tell you about a book that traces the history of that fishery and explains how it all came about. What's a Philistine? It's a guy who doesn't care about books or interesting films and things. Then I'm a Philistine. The great thing about poetry is that sometimes you can get lost in it. When a poem works, it resonates past logic. You lose yourself in a chord of language, of a perfect economy of words that hits in a way that doesn't necessarily make sense, but it feels good. You might not understand what's going on, but you enjoy it. The problem with poetry is that sometimes you can get lost in it. Without a story or characters to hold on to, a poem can feel like a, this chaotic jumble, a dartboard of language, a monkey with a dictionary. And when that happens, words that might make you feel something turn into ash and slip through your fingers. Chris Dombrowski primarily writes poetry, but his book, Body of Water, is narrative nonfiction. On its face, it's just a damn good fishing story. A Rocky Mountain fishing guide gets obsessed with a certain saltwater fish and goes on to spend time and money that his young family just can't afford pursuing that fish. Of course, all of us who genuinely understand pursuing fish know that it's never just about the fish. And as readers follow Dombrowski onto sun-soaked flats, chasing another hookup, another banshee howling run, we get far more than we might have expected. This book provides an unauthoritative account of the Bahamian bonefish industry through the cataract-milked eyes of a man who arguably pioneered that industry. It explores how these unpalatable and once-reviled bottom feeders became silver bricks in the foundation of high-end Bahamian tourism and the subsequent tussle over who gets to stand on top of that structure. Body of Water stands out not just as an engrossing fishing book with enough depth to feel worthy of your time, but as a sublime example of what happens when a poet turns his whittled phrasings into a long-form narrative. It's just satisfying to read. Here's an example. I was about to enter my 13th year as a fly fishing guide in Montana, but would have to wait two months 
before my seasonal work began in earnest, and wait twice that many months before I could begin to row my way out of five-figure deep debt, the product of some of my patented financial wizardry, which was itself largely a product of having indentured myself to the angling life at age 16, followed by sustained attempts to live like a 16-year-old for the ensuing 17 years. I think it's fair to say, now, with the perspective several years afford, that I was, at best, clinically depressed, fatigued with indecision that bordered on dread and in need of professional help. My psychologist father would have referred me to any number of well-qualified counselors, but out of some strange instinct or allegiance, I trusted only Waters' treatments. Threadbare, more than a bit benumbed, I hoped I might be able to fish myself out of my fret-driven depression. I'd done it before, each cast a pathway out of what I assumed was myself. I remembered vaguely, or perhaps an invented, an apocryphal story in which doctors in ancient India tied mentally ill patients to trees beside the moving water. Sequestered near the sound of water running over rocks, the mad were often cured. I was hoping to fill such a prescription. Now, if that doesn't make you want to follow along, you just don't like good fishing stories. So, do yourself a favor and pick up a copy of Body of Water. Dude, we need to get Dombrowski on this show. Aren't, like, aren't, you, aren't you two buddies? <laughs> like, why have we not already done this? Is he worried that hanging out with us might tarnish his brand or something? Uh, no, no, no. It's not like that. It's not like that. I mean, yes, Chris is a very well-respected writer and a guy, but he's he's not like one of those holier-than-thou, high-and-mighty kind of dudes. It's <laughs> I, That is not on him. Honestly, like I am the problem. We, he and I, we just haven't had a chance to catch up, you know, and like, I don't want to be, I don't want the first contact for me to be me asking him for a favor. You know, like, I don't, yeah. I don't want to be that guy. Like we haven't talked in like 10 months, but Hey, I got some, can you help me out with some? I just, I don't want to do that. You know? So I, I got to catch up with him. Oh, it's, 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 that's totally fair. It's like my buddy, it's like my buddy, John Frazier at Sims. You call him and be like, Hey man, pair of waiters. <laughs> How you been by the way? Shout out to John. Uh, that is fair, but you should get on that. And while we hope to have Dombrowski on the show sometime soon, we're not uh, waiting around for him. This show, like the news, waits for no one. And it is time for Fish News. Fish News! That escalated quickly. All right, let's fire up some housekeeping quickly. Uh, kind of big news. I mean, it's not really big. It's kind of exciting news, at least <laughs> I don't know for if it's us. Big news. It's not big news. <laughs> we have stickers. Yeah, finally. And I'm such a I'm such a sticker nerd. Uh, some of you guys have been asking about stickers, and some of you may have seen Miles and I post these on our Instagram pages last week. But quick sticker recap: We now have some super badass meat eater fishing stickers drawn by my good bud and killer artist Mike Sudol, and they've got yep. a wicked food chain Russian nesting doll. Sort of thing. One one listener even uh, likened it to the human centipede, but he—I mean—he's just a sicko. Nah, so like, yeah, that's no, there. not real. It can't like, go that way. No. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> it's a muskie swallowing a bass. That's swallowing a trout. That's swallowing a minner, and it's damn cool. So those are now available to all in the meat eater store. But strong possibility, Miles and I might have a few stacks of those set aside to give away. That is highly likely. A um, little, little secret stash, maybe. Little see, yeah, you know. Um, but we also have uh, official degenerate angler bent stickers, which trained eyes 
might notice mirror the, the text segues used in the movie Clerks. So the burning question out there, how do you get some? I know all of you are wondering. Well, there are a few different options. Uh, if we use anything that you send to our email, bent at themeateater.com on the show, whether it's an awkward photo or a salesman item or a news story or a question for Lance, a bar nomination, really, really anything at all. Even if we just give you yeah. a shout out or, or you yep. correct us on something we screw up, uh, you'll get a little sticker pack from us. We'll send it to you. <laughs> However, we're also we're also keeping an eye on the hashtags Degenerate Angler and Bent Podcast on the gram. So, you know, if you impress us, like make us laugh, <laughs> we'll we'll probably throw some stickers your way. Yeah, at least for now, the only way to get yourself an official Degenerate Angler sticker is to somehow charm me or Miles. But a modicum of work involved there. Think about how much cooler it'll be to stick one of these ultimately valueless items on your Lance V series tackle box because you got it directly from us. And I'll also add that we're not very difficult to charm. No, so, no. yeah, simple, simple, anglers. simple people. It's time for you to represent. We appreciate it. All right. It is time to get to fish news. And uh, a quick reminder, this is a competition. Joe and I do not know which stories the others bring to the table. And we are, as always, competing for the praise, the recognition, and, and the validation <laughs> of our paternal podcast engineer, Phil. Joe, you're leading off, man. What do you got? I am. I am. So I'll tell you what, dude, I'm about to make a very dedicated uh, listener of this program. Perhaps even may I go as far as, as to say our number one fan. Very happy this week. Okay. And that person is Mr. Mike Stevens of the Western Outdoor News. Oh, Mike. Mike. Yes. He emails yeah. us weekly. I, yeah, I, dude. All right. I know. I'm sorry. I'm going to, I'm going to jump in on you because you reminded me, <laughs> you actually reminded <laughs> me of some, some housekeeping I should probably do too. Do too, because I I totally forgot. I have a, a a very important correction that needs to be addressed. Mike, uh, <laughs> he wrote in to tell me that I I messed up in our recent interview that we did with Oliver and I, and and, and in that we asked Oliver to choose between Nike pumps and Reebok catapults, and and Mike wrote, <laughs> he said, I'm pretty sure it was LA Gear, not Reebok, that made the catapult. That's a true remember. watchdog. That's a watchdog right there. Yep. And, and, and he goes checker. on to say, I only remember because I played hoops in high school, and back then it was all about whose shoe you wore. Carl Malone <laughs> rocked catapults, but oh LA Gear was almost always in the lame category. So uh, thank you for that, Mike. And since I, I wrote the question, I take full responsibility for that, <laughs> that egregious error. And let's hope I don't mess up anything nearly that important in, in fish news here. Sorry. Uh, well, All right, I'm, back to no, you, No, Joe. no, 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 no. That, that's great. I'm glad we worked that in. Mike gets double shouted out. Um, but this is no joke. I didn't go look Mike up. This story of his in the Western Outdoor News genuinely popped up um, in my Google News feed, and it's very recent, and it, it resonated with me so much, and I'm betting it will resonate with a lot of other people out there, and it made me say, yes, damn right, you preach, Brother Mike. Headline, Lake Management, stop publicizing stock days. So listen- <laughs> Yeah, I got I got a serious education from this piece because I'm not hip to the California truck trout scene. I, I don't know anything about it. And according to Mike's story, due to a mix of factors, which include um, some virus outbreaks at certain fish hatcheries, meaning the fish, not the people like the, right. the, I don't know what they got, but the fish got sick. Uh, plus COVID-19 budget shortfalls, misallocated funds. And as he put it, a deprioritizing of fishing at, at state and federal leadership levels California had a, a shortage of trout this past season. 
And uh, this is a, a big problem. And as in many other states, it sounds like Cali has a, a mix of fish that, you know, some come from state hatcheries and some come from private hatcheries, which is important because I'll jump into a, a selection from Mike's story. It says, lakes opting for private providers of hatchery rainbows are not immune either because anglers frustrated at the lack of trout plants at their local holes are going to look elsewhere. And most are willing to get up earlier and burn some gas in order to find spots where putting five on a stringer is within the realm of possibility. Lakes stocked by private, non-DFW hatcheries are no longer solely doing so for the benefit of local anglers, because those folks are the ones taking advantage of the best trout fishing a given lake has to offer, and most of that carnage is going down on the day a lake is stocked. Most anglers know the location their favorite lakes are stocked, and even on an unfamiliar lake, it's easy to figure out, and there's not many practical workarounds there. But lake staffers or city personnel publicizing the day, if not the time, of the plant on social media or their own websites is what creates that gauntlet, and that's what he's saying needs to stop. And Mike goes on to say... There's an understandable benefit to posting those details because it results in cars lined up outside the gate hours before the lake area opens. And it sounds like a lot of these lakes, which is a little different from the East Coast, have concession stands that sell everything from coffee to worms to fishing permits and hot dogs. And they make money off people showing up to catch these trout. But his argument is that that quick spike in cash, right, produced by posting these minute stocking details, it's kind of a bad win. Because what happens is the joint gets fished out in a day or two. Then there's this long-ass lull in action between stockings during which these same concession stands aren't making any money. And meanwhile, he's saying all you see on social media, um, you know, is people crying about this spot's fished out. It's fished out. It's fished out over here. Or berating people, calling them truck trout chasers, you know. And um, yet, as Mike points out, the situation has sort of forced you to become a truck chaser. Because if you want to experience a really good hot bite, you kind of sort of have to play this game. You have to be there when they're stocked. And Mike finishes with, um, why not keep stock dates under wraps? You can still announce how many pounds will be stocked over the course of a season or how many times within a given month trout will go in. And even DFW only publishes the week trout plants are scheduled to happen, not the day. And he says, if we, if we adopted that, if California adopted that, he says the crowds will spread out over the rest of the month, making fishing more comfortable. And there will absolutely be more permits and worms and cups of Joe sold over the long run to all the new faces in the crowd. And dude, this hits so close to home for me. It's not even funny. I'll tell you, like out here, uh, my entire life, trout stock streams in Jersey closed two weeks before the season opened. And across the river in Pennsylvania, one month before the season opened. And those rivers and, and lakes could be stocked anytime within that period, right? And then after opening day, you could find out the week most bodies of water would be stocked, but not the day. And there were a few exceptions. There were a few places where, where you could find out the day. However, you weren't allowed to fish on that day. Or you could fish like after 6 p.m. or something like that. But the bottom line is, my entire life, the, the stockers would flush the system. You know what I mean? You could wade mm -hmm. a couple miles of any given trout stream well away from the easy access stock points and catch fish. And I don't do this as much as I, I did growing up, but per recent experiences over the last few years, that doesn't really seem to happen anymore. And, you know, now, is that because it's so easy to figure out the stock weeks and days? Not entirely, because it's always been that way. 
I think it's a combo of there being a lot more people out there that want to chase stock trout now than you have the influence of social media. And I think since time is money for a lot of people, there's more effort to hit places as close to stocking as possible. And I swear these days, man, like you only catch these fish where, where they're dumped and, and they won't be there for long. And I'm, I'm getting long on this, but I, I got to end with this example. My daughter's five, just old enough for little chess waders. And I took her to a stream I grew up fishing for the first time this past spring, and she caught her first trout, right? But we started at the bridge, nothing. Went to two more known holes down, nothing. Fourth hole was a charm. We caught four trout, missed a few, all in just that one hole, brought them home, cooked them up. Short trip because five-year-olds have no attention span. But I went back two days later by myself, and there in that spot was a rooster tail package, some asshole left on the bank, and I caught zero trout. And I waited half a mile or so downstream, zero trout. So my point is, like my daughter had this really sort of cherished milestone experience because of pure dumb luck and timing. Like we we just went, I paid no attention to the schedule and it was pure luck. And had I taken her two days later, she may not have caught her first trout last spring and we, we probably would have caught nothing. And I feel like what Mike's saying and what I see here, that's in a lot of places becoming what trout stocked fishing is. Man, I got, this is so outside of my realm yeah. of, of experience and understanding. Cause I, I've just, I've never, ever done any of this. And so yeah. you know, on one hand, it's really fascinating to me. Uh, just this, this whole culture about trying to time where they're going to be and when they're going to be there. I know now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sort of sounds like what you're saying is what Mike is calling for is what's already happening out East. And that's not solving the problem either. Well, so if that's I mean, not the solution, what is it? I mean, see, I think this is this is what's happening here on both sides of the country, right? I think you have a good example of government or whoever thinking that by putting this detailed information out there, they're making it easier for more people to enjoy fishing and enjoy the outdoors, right? But that's that's questionable. Um, I, you know, I agree. People want to know where their money's being spent. So to say, hey especially out here, we buy, we buy trout stamps, all that money goes to the hatchery programs. So to say, Hey, we're putting X amount of pounds of trout in these rivers between April one and May 30th and call it done. We, that we've told you how many trout are going in there. You know, when opening day is, but beyond that, I think it would be a great idea to, to completely randomize that and, and not make it so, so cut and dry. Uh, but at the same time, it's always been that way out here, and it's I, – I don't know, man. I don't know if it's fewer people fishing. I don't know if it's more people jumping out there following those those stock days. But, you know, growing up, yeah, like you'd get your jollies catching six and ten minutes at the bridge on opening day. Like you wanted that chain stringer mm -hmm. full of your six right away. But the real satisfying ones was like that lone fatty you'd catch in June a couple miles, like way away from where they stocked. You know, that was, one hold over. Almost wild at that point. Oh, it was almost well, the meat was you dude, the, the, the big thing here, you open up, you're like, it's got pink meat. The meat, <laughs> the meat turned pink. Like that was like the big thing. But I don't know, man. I, I I talk to a lot of dudes. I feel like that's not as common an occurrence now. It's like you better get your ass there when they're dumped. They're gonna get whacked out of these holes. No time to flush the system, and that's that's. I have no issue with stock trout fishing. It's what I grew up doing, and back in the day, they would they would get throughout a good chunk of the system, and then it would actually feel like you were trout fishing for real. They were still stocked, but you could sneak around a bend or walk a little further and and pick fish off. 
And it's it doesn't happen like that anymore. It sounds like the way that you're describing it happening now and what Mike was writing about sounds really transactional to me. Mm-hmm. Like it, it makes me think of the those pay to play hatchery ponds where you could, you know, five bucks for three trout, right? right? You know, which right. never even when I was a kid and all I cared about was catching fish, those had no appeal to me. Like I was just no. not interested in doing that. And so the idea of of stocked trout streams, at least in my head, is not to be the that that paid hatchery pond, but it's to simulate the experience of That's exactly catching right. trout in a semi-wild environment that feels more like fishing. And what it sounds like you guys are both describing is the the loss of that sense. And and I, I think I agree that that's a problem. I don't know enough to say like, well, I think this is the solution because I'd be an no. asshole to say that. But I agree that there's a problem there. No, no, no. And 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 you said that beautifully. That's what it was. Like you accept that these are, you know, clip fin, you know, raceway fish, but they're put there so that your river that's probably going to be dry by June feels like a real trout stream for a few months. And you get out there and you fish the riffles. And uh, I, I don't fully understand the Cali deal, but I don't think it's it's full on pay lake. It just sounds to me like you know, these are these are private and state stockings, but it's not a pay lake because a pay lake is constantly adding more to keep the pay up. I I get it. I was just, I was using the pay thing as as an example of what it's not trying to be. I I mean, same, same deal here in our lakes, man. Like, you know, they, they stock a bunch of lakes here, but anymore, you, you go a couple weeks after they do that because guaranteed they were, people knew exactly when they were dumping them. And they, like, I, what I could never understand is that how, how you could look at it as a good time to like sit there with your power bait in the water while they're dumping nets of trout over (laughs) top of the power bait in the water. (laughs) Like that ruins yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, but anyway, no, I mean, I, it's like it's like pulling the curtain back on the magic. Yeah, I, I I totally get that. We I think this is one we could probably cover like half a show on. But I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna move us away because because otherwise we will. And and I'm gonna <laughs> follow it up with some other questionable fishing practices uh, within the industry. Okay. And 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 it's a little Ooh. bit awkward because I feel like pretty soon we're gonna get a reputation on on this show for bagging on fishing tournaments. And, you know, neither of us are tournament anglers, and that's something we have discussed in the past, but I, I, I feel like I got to say, I don't actively hate on tournament fishing. It's not something I want to do, but I don't hate on it, and I think yeah. tournaments increase the visibility and the popularity of fishing, and that's something that you and I both fully support. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll clarify for myself, too. Like, I'm not a tournament guy, not my scene, not what I'm into, not why I fish, but I am also not, like anti like there no. should never be fishing tournaments at all I'm, I'm really really not but despite having said all that and needing to caveat that this this next story is exactly the kind of outcome that can paint tournaments in a bad light all right so in july of 2019 a guy by the name of ben Wu hosted a two-day bass tournament on the saint lawrence river in ontario canada after the opening day of the tournament the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources started getting calls from local anglers reporting that lots of fish were dying. After the tournament, Bruce Tufts, who's the the fisheries biologist that helped craft the province's guidelines on on fish handling during competition, he went down to the marina because he'd heard these rumors and Mm -hmm. he, he was just wanting to investigate. So he and some officers from the Ministry of Natural Resources, they started poking around. They found a few dead fish in the bushes nearby and they found a few more in the water. But then a marina employee pointed them toward a dumpster. There, Mm. they found 185 dead smallmouth, double bagged in black plastic, and buried under a bunch of other trash. In total, investigators found nearly 200 fish that the biologist Tufts 
described to the CBC as, quote, the biggest, best brood stock in our fishery. And oh. if you look at the photos, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd have to agree. They're all really, really nice smallmouth. Now, Tufts claims that these fish died as a result of high temperatures and low oxygen levels in the holding tank the tournament used to keep fish after they'd been weighed. A staff sergeant for the ministry told the CBC, we believe the organizer was negligent in the way he handled the fish, and that's what resulted in the deaths of so many. Okay, so all this happened in the summer of 2019, and so why am I talking about it now? Well, the guy who put on that tournament, Ben Wu, was recently convicted of failing to abide by the terms and conditions of his license as an organizer. He received a fine of 9000 bucks. That's, that's Canadian dollars and a 20 year suspension of his fishing license in the province of Ontario. But, but here's the kicker for me. Wu doesn't live in Ontario anymore. In the wake of this incident, which, you know, didn't look real good for him. He moved to new Brunswick and this punishment doesn't impact Wu's fishing privileges in any province other than Ontario. Now, I have to say, Wu denies any wrongdoing in the handling of the fish, and I feel like I need to point out that he has hosted lots of tournaments and has never been linked to any other fish kills. He blames the venue and claims that poor water quality from the river was a contributing factor. Now, maybe that's true, maybe it isn't, but either way, I gotta say, man, this dude's conduct seems really, really sketchy to me. Reports from the first day of the tournament indicate that Wu and other organizers knew they had a problem with fish mortality in that tank. Despite that, they did not halt the event to save the fish, and they didn't report the fish deaths to the Ministry of Natural Resources, which they were required to do by law. Moreover, even though Wu denies doing so, it looks like they tried to hide all those dead fish, right? Like they buried them in trash bags in the dumpster in order to avoid getting in trouble. And in contradictory public statements, Wu has said that he has, quote, no negligence and that he, quote, takes full responsibility. So I don't quite know what to do with that. He also told the CBC that he was done hosting fishing tournaments, but then continued to host fishing tournaments under a new business name. (laughs) So, look, I'm just going to close by saying, like, reiterating that I think fishing tournaments play an important role in modern fishing culture and the fishing industry, which we're both part of. I'm not trying to hate on tournaments, but... Incidents like this make some people understandably skeptical of competitive angling, right? And and I know, and, and you know, the big circuits like Bass and FLW and Major League Fishing, they work really hard to ensure that they minimize fish mortality. But there are a lot of smaller tournaments like that one out there that don't have the resources of those three tours. And look, man, those are the ones I worry about because they have impacts on the fisheries too. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, ultimately, right terrible story but you certainly can't look at this and 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 say this is all tournaments by a stretch this is one bad dude who did it wrong i mean you know you can't you can't let this sort of uh tarnish your view of all of all bass tournaments no um but you know i have like a really bold statement i want to make that's that's actually based off someone i interviewed who i'd have to keep nameless uh but it's uh, I'm hesitant, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it because it's sort of, it sort of ties in, you know, um, years ago I was, I was doing some interview work about, uh, a GAR study in South Texas. Right. And there's I'm familiar, tons of, familiar yeah, with the study, tons, tons of bass tournaments down there. And, uh, you know, bass is big business, brings in a lot of money and you have a lot of bass fishermen that want to see all the guard dead because they're down there killing, you know, supposedly mm-hmm. killing all their bass. Mm, yeah. 
And they did this study on these gar. And then long story short, they, they kind of found that uh, the thing they were eating the least of was largemouth bass. Mm -hmm. I mean, they cut them open, did stomach contents. It was all rough fish. And um, I can't say names because I promised that I wouldn't. But, but someone with authority within that whole deal said, you know, I, what, I, what I really want to tell all these bass dudes is that the worst thing for the bass in your lake is another tournament every single weekend on these lakes. Like it is more disruptive to the bass population than, than anything else. And even that, right. Uh, still not saying tournaments are bad, but it's real easy to look at this dude and be like, well, what an asshole. Look, he screwed up. He knew the fish were being harmed. He ended up throwing all these fish in the dumpster. That's the worst case scenario. But on that local level too, you know, I live by lakes out here and I don't even live in super bass land that also there's a, there's a tournament on them almost every weekend by some club, you know, and I think we just don't think about that. You know what I mean? It's, it's real easy to look at how they're held after how they're released, what happens after the fact. But if there's something to think about, it's, it's also the pressure of tournaments on these lakes that see a lot of them in a lot of yeah. different parts of the country. You know? Yeah, totally. And look, we got to move on, but I will, I'll close by saying, adding to that, under 5% mortality is considered acceptable. So stretch that out over every weekend with big tournaments all the time. There, there's an impact there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, again, not coming down on tournaments. I, I do agree with you that they, they do a lot of good for fishing. But, um, you know, that's, that's, that's a lot of stress depending on the lake, depending how it often the, it the, is. they see it. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination 
on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Well, I'll jump from stress on fish to, uh, man, it's a shit segue. Uh, <laughs> stress on one of America's greatest outdoor writers. How about that? And I'll, I'll lead it by saying, or asking rather, even though I kind of already know the answer, are you a Hemingway fan? As you, in earnest. You entirely not know the answer Ma- not, to this question. Not Mariel. Yeah. 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 You, you know the okay. answer to this question. And okay. I am, I will say, I think that he ha- did so much for the form of writing, like modern writing. And, and particularly his short fiction for me is 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 fantastic. I I'm also at a, a sort of an advantage or disadvantage. I don't know how the story is going to go, but when <laughs> I used to teach at the university, I, I taught some Hemingway, so I, I'm, okay. I'm a little bit in this this world. Yeah. No, 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 no. And that's all well and good. And, and I learned some Hemingway in school. I did the Hemingway thing, and and right out of the gate, right, incredible respect for Ernest Hemingway. And I agree, he is an incredible writer, icon, one of the best there ever was. I just have always sort of taken a little issue with people that sort of they they fancy themselves well versed in outdoor literature, but immediately jump to Hemingway as their main guy. Like that's the main guy. And I've met many of these people, and like to put it in a different way, I'll use this analogy. It's like hearing someone say, like, I'm really into punk music. And I'm like, oh, cool, me too. <laughs> Who's your favorite band? And they're like, oh, Green Day. Uh, I knew you were gonna say that, and that pisses me off, but go ahead. <laughs> I love I love Green Day. Green Day is terrific, but like if that's where you jump to pronounce your love of punk, especially then if you have no idea who Operation Ivy or the Misfits or the Descendants are, I'm like I can't have a conversation about this with you. And I just sometimes feel, and this is just my opinion, and you'll, you're going to fight me. Hemingway is just too token and easily latched upon, right? And I just need to establish that because this little story from the Wall Street Journal is for these sort of token Hemingway people. Headline: Fly fishing the Ernest Hemingway way. And it begins, interestingly, when Ernest Hemingway's well-worn steamer trunk containing his fly fishing gear disappeared from a train bound for Sun Valley, Idaho in 1940. The loss was so crushing, the author never again waded into the shallows. Instead, he concentrated his angling efforts far offshore, catching record-breaking pelagics like sailfish and marlin. And that was a little fun fact I did not know about Hemingway. Anyway, his great-grandson Patrick said the loss of this trunk shook the entire family. But apparently, the idea of this long-lost steamer trunk loaded with Hemingway's fishing gear is now the inspiration for a new Hemingway inshore collection of wares from several high-end brands, one of which is Everall. And that's who created the reels within this line. Okay, now Everall, because you're giving me the look of what's that, right? You ever heard of Everall? I haven't. I'm feeling negligent. In so my no, job no, no, right no, 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 no. So, so Everall is not a well-known name, right? However, seeing that I'm a vintage tackle nerd, while they were never super prevalent in the U.S. market, in the rest of the world, Europe and everything, they're the Van Stall man, the accurate, the old school finor, like serious machinery for whooping big fish. And apparently, per this story, Hemingway was a big Everall fan. He had a lot of Everall reels made. In fact, a vintage Italian Everall big game reel is high on my list of personal vintage tackle desires. I'm just extremely poor, so I don't know if that'll ever happen. (laughs) Anyway, this is from the story. Debuting in December, the handcrafted nine-weight fly reels come in a mahogany box 
and are packed in freshly plain wood shavings, smelling the way you'd expect anything Hemingway to smell. Earthy, warm, woodsy. Which makes me wonder, do you Hemingway dudes sit around and talk about what you think Papa smelled like? Is that what you guys do? <laughs> All the time. Okay, all right. It continues. The author's only surviving fly rods and the inshore collection fly rods share similar craftsmanship. Designer Anthony Toro spent 60 hours forming each two-piece eight-foot stick from Tonkin bamboo, including wrapping its nickel silver ferrules in black kimono Japanese silk thread and attaching a real seat built of titanium and a base and fighting butt made of West Indian mahogany and Spanish cedar. Now, I looked up this entire collection, which also includes some conventional offshore reels and even a, a custom Willie Roberts flat skiff, a Hemingway flat skiff. Here's a price list, as you would imagine. The fly rod and reel come as a set for $4,500. Okay, And guess what? They're already sold out. Per the website, they're already sold out. The flat skiff, $95,000. And then you've got the offshore reels starting at a measly seven fifty dollars because I guess they need something for the lowly, unrefined, low-budget ballyhoo puller. And listen, I understand that all this shit has been developed for people with stupid money. And that's fine. That's totally fine. But I also am willing to bet there are like those Hemingway people I'm talking about out there that while they may not be able to afford any of this either, would just love to have it. Like they'd be all about being decked out in Hemingway gear, and I look at that Everall fly reel, and dude, it is gorgeous. Like, I'm sure it's one of the best-made fly reels ever. However, like, as much as I want an Everall in my collection, I wouldn't be able to show up, like, in the Louisiana Delta to chase redfish with my Hemingway logo <laughs> reel. I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. I'd have to put a Green Day sticker over the Hemingway graphic. So there you go. Just a little little thing from the from the journal, and I'm, I'll let you. You're going to come at me hard here. I'm not. Uh, but if you still I'm need not. Christmas present ideas, everybody, I'm you're not going to commit you at all. Here, I, in fact, I'm not going to say much because I don't think there's the time or place for a Hemingway debate. But I will say this: I think Hemingway <laughs> would absolutely hate everything about that. That's fair. I think he is That's rolling fair. over in his yes. grave. Nothing about him was like embracing any of that pomp and circumstance elitist bullshit. Yeah. That was not He does not, not want style. the replica of his boat at the Bass Pro Shops in, in the Keys. He didn't no. want that. No. So I think the fact that his name is being profited off of that way to dupe people with, with more money than sense, I think would piss him off. That's, That's what fair. I'll say. That's fair. Fair. We um, can debate Hemingway later. I have not read yeah. much of it, so you'll win. Yeah, I, I, I have. Um, <laughs> I know. I have no connection between that story and this one, <laughs> so I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to swap. Dr. Karen Osborne, a zoologist from the Smithsonian Institute, primarily studies invertebrates, very deep sea invertebrates to be specific. As part of her research, she takes pictures of critters in the deepest parts of the ocean, and even though she's usually focused on, on really, really tiny organisms— She'll take pictures of just about whatever she can find down there because, you know, you don't see much. Right. It's going to say take what you can get in that environment. Exactly. <laughs> so Osborne kept photographing this one particular fish, the fangtooth, which looked exactly like you imagine. But every image she took, she could only see the silhouette and not the fish itself. Okay. I kept trying to take pictures of it, Osborne told Wired Magazine, and I was just getting these silhouettes. They were terrible. This happened enough times that she figured something weird was going on and decided to investigate further because that's what scientists do. So she captured some of these fish and, and she analyzed them. Turned out the problem wasn't her photography skills. 
These fish make really terrible models because their skin actually absorbs and traps 99.5% of the light that hits it. They're Weird. Like living, swimming black holes without all the vacuous gravity and supermass. Weird. Yeah. Cool. So Dr. Osborne discovered that these fish have very distinct arrangements of melanin in their skin. Melanin being the compound that gives skin pigment. Melanin is stored and transported by organelles called melanosomes. The melanosomes in these fish are arranged in such a way that light bounces around between them instead of reflecting back out. They've created effectively a structural light trap, Dr. Osborne told the website Inverse, but they've done it using just the shape of the pigment that's in there, which is so cool and so efficient. We're harnessing this for military something, <laughs> dude. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, this is nuts. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly useful adaptation for the fish because it renders them virtually invisible to both predators and prey. Since they live more than 600 feet below the surface, where there's almost no structure for them to use as cover, they basically like carry their cover around with them all the time. But now hold up. Some of you who are, are thinking ahead might be wondering like, you know, wh why does this matter if these fish live so far down that the sunlight doesn't reach them, right? Like how yeah. would that yeah. help them out? All right, well, check this out. So many deep water species create their own light sources called bioluminescence. Yeah. And, and, and both predators and prey use that. And for an example, like imagine that classic angler fish that we all found, learned about when we were kids, right? It's that deep yeah, my, sea my fish. Yeah, my kid's got a the, stuffed one in the other room. Loves exactly, them. right? It's yeah, got that, yeah, yeah. that glowing lure that, that hangs off of its head, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And anglerfish, by the way, also have this special light-absorbing skin. And that's what makes their ruse work. If the light from their little glowing lures actually lit up their freaky looking faces, no <laughs> prey fish would even come close to them and it wouldn't work out. So, you know, when you think of fish in shallow water environments where there's a lot of sunlight, a lot of those fish have adapted mirrored scales or, or translucent bodies, and that's what they use to hide. But mirrored scales and translucents are easily visible under a bioluminescent light source. So they don't work in the deep. This unique pigmentation that Dr. Osborne observed absorbs the light that deep water fish create and therefore makes a perfect camouflage. Once Dr. Osborne and her colleagues started digging into this, they found 16 different species of fish with the trait, many of which are not even related to each other. Whoa. So like a bunch of unrelated cool. fish evolved the same trait independently because it works. Even cooler, at least, at least to me. Some of these fish have this ultra black coating lining their guts. And the theory for that goes that it would block the bioluminescent light from the fish they've just eaten. Whoa. Right? Dude, that's, so, yeah, man. You know, and it seems like the, such a cliche thing to say, but you know how people are like, we know more about space than we do about our ocean. Yeah, we do. <laughs> like, dude, the year 2020 and we just figured this out. I mean, that's yeah. rad. That's it's really so cool. cool. And and to your point, yes, the team, uh, Dr. Osborne team, think this might help, like, might have biodesign applications, and it might create better telescopes or, or cameras. There might be some application for blocking light pollution, and yes, it might lead to some <laughs> make a new whole nuclear submarine disappear in front exactly. of your eyes. <laughs> yes, yes, that's how we that. do. We just we just take nature and then <laughs> and then turn it into a weapon. Man, like I don't really have like much like ex like I don't I just I'm that was. 
one of the most fascinating of your science stories yet. That was really like that's really interesting. I, I could not. I knew the moment I saw that one, I was like, "Oh, I'm I'm writing this one up." There's no question. This one this one's going in in the podcast. Man, and then I mean, it, it always fascinates me too. Just that anybody can put that level of study into anything that lives that deep because you can't bring them up alive. Like they couldn't bring them up alive, right? No, no, they had to they they had to kill them and and to analyze them. But I the other piece of the story, and I don't want to go too far off on this, but. This is like such a classic example of why scientists are interesting to me and, and how their brains work. This is not what this person studies. She studies invertebrates. She studies tiny things. But she has the kind of mind where she noticed like, wow, I wonder yeah. why I can only get silhouettes of this fish. Hmm. I better study that. Like, I just, I love that. Just the the, the ability to, or the choice to be so aware of what you're looking at and know that it then leads to an avenue for discovery. I just think yeah. that's so valuable, and I respect people who have that so much. Super cool, super cool story, Phil. What are you going to do, man? You got buy, you got you got a new fish species. You got expensive Hemingway gear. You got truck trout. Truck trout. Got, <laughs> dead bass. Dead bass, man. It's going to be a tough decision. Um, but as soon as we hear from Phil to see who who won this week's news showdown, we're going to go over to uh, fan favorite awkward moments in angling. And um, make a dude regret that he sent us his photo. Miles, as much as I appreciated the update on all of the crazy shit happening in the deepest trenches of the ocean, the winner this week is Joe Cermelli. <laughs> Joe, I really related to your stocking dilemma story, as I'm currently editing this podcast from the utility closet of a Target waiting for them to stock their store with PlayStation 5s. Why don't you take a picture of the life longer? <laughs> so who is our victim this week in awkward moments in angling? I also have to say that we have a tendency to flim flam the name between awkward moments in angling. Sometimes we say awkward moments in fishing. You people know what we're talking about. It's the same, it's the same segment. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you get it. They, I think so, they're smarter <laughs> enough to follow that. I give I give our <laughs> listeners that much credit. Yeah, but we're, that's very unprofessional for us to keep changing the name, but it's, it's, that's our problem. Anyway, uh, on the chopping block this week uh, is Mr. Dave Sobecki, or Sobeck. One of those is right. I hope I'm saying your name right, dude. Um, now, Dave wrote us a very nice note about the podcast and uh, his experiences at a Pantera show. The Pantera, you guys love it. And just kind of slipped this shot in as like a little addendum. And after mm -hmm. some discussion of the Crow soundtrack and how his buds would <laughs> also go out of their way to play music on jukeboxes that would just piss off the entire bar, he kind of did the old, like, oh, by the way, here's a photo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> by the way, I also happen to have this little gem hidden away that you might enjoy. And, like, when you kept reading, the email didn't say much about the photo. Yeah, it just, no. it, like It was just, like, a little bit of a breadcrumb. Uh, <laughs> and just kind of teed it up, and it was perfect because there's there's so much that we could say about this photo. Like we could we could honestly do we could take up the rest of the show just yes, bagging on this yes, photo. We, we won't, could. but we we're, could. Yeah, we're not going to, but yes, we could. So that's right. And 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 here's what Dave wrote. Okay, below you'll find a very awkward photo of me circa 1989 <laughs> in the North Woods of Wisconsin, proving I was OG metal and a virgin, but thought I was cool. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, all right, I'm looking at this right now, and and I will say I think it also proves that he was very very high. <laughs> I'm I'm not judging, and I don't nope. mean to to like like read this based on appearances or whatever, but 
Like it kind of looks like Dave could barely hold his bloodshot eyes open as that <laughs> shutter clicked. Like there's just these little <laughs> slits of eyes. I, I could be wrong. Like yeah. maybe there was a bright flash. Maybe he was looking into the sun. I don't know. But he looks pretty baked. Yeah. Just, I'll just call it what it yeah, is. Yeah. So so Dave in 1989, right? He had long blonde hair with like flippy, flappy, feathery <laughs> wings. And who comes to mind right away? I don't know why, but it's Duff McKagan from Guns N' oh, Roses. There's a lot of Guns N' Roses going yeah, on. Yeah. And, but, but the facial expression is more like an Axl Rose kind of I don't give a shit. Right. For sure. And this is yeah. this is probably offensive to Dave, considering we both know he's a Pantera fan. <laughs> So he's a Pantera fan. He's, he's ah. all about Phil Anselmo, and we're calling it was, him. It was eighty nine. It was eighty nine. He was. He might not have got there yet. Yeah, I know. I'm calling it like I see it. Uh, anyway, he's wearing a, a classic '80s foam trucker hat, and the photo is very washed out, like over flash. So I can't make out what's on the hat, but I'm sure if I could, it would be another point of ridicule. But I can't see it, <laughs> Dave. You can fill us in later. But it's okay because the rest of the ensemble leaves plenty to talk about, man. Uh, yeah, it does, <laughs> and we will cover that. But like, first, we should mention it is a fishing picture. Yes. Right? Like, theoretically, this is about <laughs> fishing, and so Dave's holding two pike vertically. Uh, one in each hand, and there's no consistency to the hold, which also, again, <laughs> supports my theory that he was baked. He's got like he's got one under the gill plate, and then he's got the other just like with the the clamp down behind the head. Yeah, and neither of these are particularly big fish, <laughs> right? But that's okay. Like, yeah, yeah I sure. have plenty of those it's photos fine. too from my 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 childhood. But they are mostly obscuring what appears to be a Bart Simpson <laughs> T-shirt. Which perfect for that that era. It just it nails it. I cannot tell exactly which version of the yeah. very popular Bart Simpson t-shirts he's <laughs> wearing. Go there. Way. It could it, it, it's either cowabunga dude or don't have a cow man. Like they're, they're, those are your only options for those of you who are there. Uh, <laughs> as an added bonus, Dave's got his his folded sunglasses hanging down from the collar of the shirt. And again, not the greatest photo. I can't tell if they're aviators. <laughs> Or blue blockers, you know, like those big sunglasses that the old people, like my dad, would fit around their reading glasses when they went fishing because it would polarize them. I, I was kind of thinking like he was going for Terminator glasses. Oh, the blades. Because remember when that was cool, like the Terminator glasses, you know. Dude, this, the, the Oakley blades. Of but, course I remember those. But this would have been years after T1 and not yet T2. So I don't know. That's very uh -huh. unsubstantiated. Uh, yeah. but that's what they look like. But um, it's it's really the waist down <laughs> that kind of takes the cake here. It's Dave's it's a lower hemisphere. hemisphere. It's a, yeah, it's yeah. A southern hemisphere of Dave. And I recognize this style of shorts because I lived in this era. But I, I'm struggling. Like I don't even know what you'd call them. Like what? You don't? No. Oh, I do. Those, my friend, are jams. Absolutely, 100%. Those are gems. Like, you guys out in Jersey had your Zubaz or whatever. <laughs> but those of us living in the surf culture, we had jams. And okay. they're similar. I'm right? learning They're similar here. in that they had the obnoxious, busy patterns and the neon colors and all that other stuff. But they were short shorts. Yes. Right? They weren't parachute pants. They were short shorts. And, and so now you know. Also, I did look this up. Similar to Zubaz, jams are still around and still available in case you're, you know, in case you're looking to diversify your summertime wardrobe, Joe. Oh, you Dave, you should have held on to them. They're probably worth uh, some vintage, <laughs> some coin in the vintage clothing thing. So, no, I had shorts that looked like that. I just don't remember calling them jams. Um, anyway, so we have the, the geometric shorts going on, but Dave's also wearing bicycle shorts. And I know yeah. this because they're extending past the jams. 
And like, <laughs> you're a couple years older than me. I think Dave is too. Like in 89, my mom was still dressing me. But like, was that a look? Like, it's like a very faith no more front oh, man. hell no. Type hell no. You did not just do that. You did not. <laughs> you did not just disparage Mike Patton in my presence. That guy's a musical genius. I didn't say it wasn't uh, a musical no, genius, but like no. when I if look someone, at that. If, someone, if, if, if someone's going to do that, that would have been a, an Anthony Kiedis move. Okay. Not no, Mike I Patton, see that too. All right? I see. Okay. Fair, that's, fair, fair. That's what fair. I would say. Red Hot Chili Peppers. But I, I can't. I don't think that was a thing. At least I didn't know that was a thing. I never did that. But the point you're making, despite my taking issue with digging on on Mike Patton, your point is valid. The bike shorts, they really are perplexing. Yes. Uh, and they like they make the whole ensemble kind of difficult to pin down. Like yeah. it was kind of making sense. And then and then you got like the bike shorts, right? <laughs> I and and if you work, if you try and take the thing as a whole and you work from the top down. Dave goes from that kind of badass, you know, he's he's got yeah. the duff hair and the Axl Rose snarl. To the, the the Bart Simpson kind of childish <laughs> shirt, and then and then we get into the bottom half, yeah, with the spandex sticking almost to his knees, and I feel like he's he's a long way from finding his confidence at that yes. point. Like it just degenerates well as he goes yes. down. Yeah, but anyway, uh, we do love this shot, and, yes. and can resonate with this shot, and we cannot thank you enough, Dave, for sending it. Uh, we promise we're going to get a little token of our appreciation headed your way just as soon as you get us your physical address. And uh, we promise not to show up your house un- unannounced. <laughs> Don't forget, you can now see Dave's shot on me and Miles' Instagram pages. That's at watermiles and at joe.cermelli138. And if you want the chance to be roasted here, send your embarrassing fishing photos to bent at the mediator.com. <laughs> Oh man, this is definitely <laughs> one of the best segment ideas we've had, Joe. Agreed. Like, uh, totally. We've all made such such bad choices in our younger fishing exploits, and yet we were so proud of ourselves. We just had to like capture it on film. I know. And you look at a lot of these oh. photos, and like you remember when they were taken at the time. It's like you were so proud of that shot and thought it was so cool, and then you thought it was awkward, and now like you have to classify these as historical gems. Like they're yeah. all just. Historical gems, time capsules. Oh, they they really are. <laughs> I couldn't have said it any better. They're they're gems. And speaking of gems from the past, before we bid you all a fine farewell, Joe is going to dig into a classic fly whose name has been uh, corrupted, shall we say? You really nailed it for this week's end of the line segment. It it it's got it all: uh, booze, drugs, crime, sex, and and even some fishing too. Fishy, 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 fishy. Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. The Mickey Finn streamer is very simple. It's tied on a long shank hook, and that shank is covered in silver tinsel, sometimes ribbed for her pleasure, sometimes not. Three small pinches of bucktail are tied in at the head. One yellow, one red, then another yellow to create a little hot dog in a bun effect. And that's it. No feathers, no flash, no pickles, no relish. Bucktail? tinsel, and a tapered head of black thread. It's what she would call a classic Atlantic salmon-style tie, and it's been around as long as other notables in the category, such as the Magog Smelt, Black Ghost, and Blue Charm. Oddly, my end-of-the-line nod to the Mickey has little to do with it being a personal fish killer, but I can't get to that part until we talk about the fly's rather bizarre and most likely at least partially bullshit-laced past. According to my research, it was developed in the 19th century by Charles Langevin, a noted tire based in Quebec, 
and originally it was called the Red and Yellow for obvious reasons. Now, here's where shit gets weird, so pay attention. Apparently, in the same general time frame, there was a saloon keeper in Chicago named Mickey Finn, who concocted a tranquilizer of sorts that some news sources referred to as knockout drops that he would slip into the cocktails of unsuspecting patrons and then rob them once they were passed out. This is, of course, where we get the term slip em a mickey which is kind of a classier, old-school, cool way of saying somebody got roofied over at the fantasy show bar. For a time, the Red and Yellow was supposedly renamed the Langevin after its creator, but that never really caught on. So fast forward to the 1930s, and now the fly is also sometimes referred to as the Assassin. That's thanks to outdoor writer John Alden Knight, who coined the term in his writings. Now, his writings caught the attention of another writer, Greg Clark of the Toronto Star, who went on a fishing trip with Knight to see what this assassin fly was all about, and they caught a ton of fish. So when Clark wrote up his account, he proclaimed the fly was as dangerous as a Mickey Finn. The name has stuck and remains today. There are also some rumors that the fly's name is somehow tied to legendary silent film actor Rudolph Valentino, who was believed to have been killed by a Mickey Finn cocktail that he received after pissing off a waiter. But that's unsubstantiated compared to the rest of this, which is sort of substantiated at least. The Mickey Finn takes me back to my early teen years when my friend Mark, who was the best man at my wedding, and I were just figuring out this whole fly fishing thing. This was years before the Junkyard Dog, Drunken Disorderly, Double Deceiver, Ice Pick, Cheech Leech, Sex Dungeon, Pearl Necklace, Sculptzilla, and 10,000 other flies I love to fish nowadays. They didn't exist then. We had Mickey Finns, Muddler Minnows, Wooly Buggers, and maybe a black ghost tied with poor quality feathers. Those made up the streamer corner of our one tiny fly box. Now the buggers, we figured out, worked real quick. The Muddler was my go-to streamer for years, but for whatever reason we really didn't catch a whole lot on those Mickey Finns. Maybe that's because we didn't give them a fair shake, or didn't really know how to present them, but regardless, it became somewhat of an inside joke. During tough days, when our buggers and muddlers and pheasant tails weren't really getting it done, one of us would inevitably suggest on the way home that we probably should have been throwing Mickey Finns all day. Ironically, it was not an aha moment on a trout stream that turned me back onto the Mickey Finn years later. It was an aha moment on the striper surf right around the time I was getting infatuated with stripping big meat for big browns. It's common in surf casting to rig a light deceiver fly on a dropper loop ahead of your plug or metal. The light fly doesn't hinder casting or the action of the main lure, and it creates the illusion of one bigger bait fish chasing a tinier bait fish. So not all the time, but from time to time, in extra dirty water, or when trout are being finicky and I think offering a buffet of size options might be beneficial, I might uh, tie a little dropper loop ahead of my double D and slip him a little extra Mickey. That is all we have for you this week. But for the budding YouTubers out there looking to harvest ideas for your channels, we explained how not to toast sandwiches on a Mr. Buddy heater, the true origins of donkey sauce, how to turn a mediocre bottom feeder into a multi-billion dollar industry and the fly you should absolutely never 
under any circumstances <laughs> discuss at a bar. Yeah, don't do that. Not good. No. Not good. Uh, we, we hope all of you find something interesting, worthwhile, and productive to do this weekend. Uh, but if that doesn't pan out, go check out the Meat Eaters YouTube channel and get caught up on the Fur Hat Ice Tour. I promise it's the best ice fishing show you've ever seen. And uh, after you've done that, you know, send an email to bent at themeateater.com. Tell us what you've been up to lately. Let us know what you crave and what you loathe. Keep those bar nominations, awkward fishing photos, sail bin submissions, and your mother's maiden names coming. We collect and uh, archive all of them, and we do love hearing from you so much. <laughs> that we do. And remember, ice fishing really is more than just a justification for day drinking. Yeah, it's a justification for day drinking and eating five brats, kielbasas, or Italian sausages, depending on where you live in a single afternoon. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.